this always cracks me up. This is sort of one of my pet peeves because you see these celebrity chefs selling their bone broth. It's like $15 a quart. It's just a real stock. We put bones in, we put leftover veggies. People can make this themselves for probably six cents a quart because <laughs> it's mostly stuff you throw away. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. So my husband and I got very sick over January for the second year in a row, womp womp, and in my haste of wanting to recover quickly for a trip, I accidentally poisoned both of us with an immunity supplement. I know. Don't worry, we are fine now, and you'll get the full story in a minute here on the interview. But it really made me realize, wow, we could all probably use some tips for better immunity, especially as we've been getting sicker over the past couple of years. And who better to educate us on natural immunity than our resident culinary medicine expert, Chef Dr. Mike. If you haven't heard our episodes with him before, I highly recommend the gut microbiome one from August. That is a good companion episode to this one. So today, Chef Dr. Mike is going to share some practical tips for building up your immunity in your day-to-day routine and while traveling. We're also going to learn about how pine trees and music can help your immune system, why we should probably all be living in log cabins, and the easiest recipe for bone broth that you can make at home. If you are new here, welcome, welcome. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for more nourishing episodes like this. And you can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.2.future. All right, on to the show. We're back in the studio with Chef Dr. Mike for a special episode on immune system, uh, which is very timely this time of year. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Doing great, Jane. Good to see you. Excited to be back. Uh, love being on with you. Your audience is great. And I always love the questions they bring to the yes. table, too. So excited to jump into 2023. Yeah, me too. I know we're in February now. For me personally, this feels like the actual start of the new year, in part because the weather's just <laughs> starting to warm up here in Boston. But also, this year has been the second year in a row that January's kind of been a wash. And both my husband and I got sick for quite a big chunk of January. Last year was COVID and this year was like a pretty bad cold. And then this is what spurred this conversation. So towards the end of my cold, I bought this supplement off of Amazon, which already is kind of a red flag. So it was this (laughs) immunity supplement that had quercetin, zinc, elderberry, vitamin C and D. So a lot of like the usual suspects when it comes to immunity. But I think there was a little bit too much quercetin in there because we both ended up getting poisoned by this stuff. Um, Yeah, long story short, yeah, stomach issues, fever, I threw up more times than I would like to admit. Um, it was just not good. Yeah. Thankfully, we got over it after a couple days, but it really like awakened in me like we shouldn't be taking supplements just willy nilly. So there's a lot to unpack there, but that's sort of like how this this conversation came about. So I wanted to start off by just getting some of the basics, the one-on-one of immune system of you know, what does a healthy immune system look like? Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, and I think that that is a, a great topic and a, a great topic to kick off the year. Most people are 
you know, of the mindset, I think that, oh, you know, we have to get rid of inflammation. We got to stop inflammation. We got to, you know, basically shut off our immune system. And that's really, I think, the wrong way to look at it, certainly from a medical perspective. And a thing that we always talk about and look for in culinary medicine, even when we craft meals, we say, you know, is it balanced? You know, some salt is good, too much salt, it's inedible, right? And, and it's kind of the same thing with the immune system. So the immune system kind of has uh, these two arms, one where it's completely off. And we, we know that that's not good. That's what happens um, when people get AIDS, a human immunodeficiency virus, right? Is that it basically shuts their immune system down completely. And then people are subject to a lot of infections. And we can identify that because they're things that we usually don't see when somebody has a healthy functioning immune system, uh, types of sarcomas and uh, other kinds of infections. Um, at the other end of the uh, spectrum, we don't want our immune system to be hyperactive and be on burning all the time, right? And, and that's what we see in a lot of, you know, chronic inflammatory diseases like obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, et cetera. Uh, so we want to be somewhere in the middle, and that's what we call in medical terms homeostasis. But you could just think of it as, as being, you know, in balance. And the way I like to think of it is just being at ease. Your body's at ease. And when we move off that, off that fulcrum from that middle balance point, either to the left or to the right, that's when we enter forms of dis-ease, um, which is literally where the word disease comes from. It's it's unease or dis-ease. Well, I've never made that connection before, but ease and dis-ease, that makes a lot of sense. On the topic of homeostasis and balance, so one thing I've noticed with myself and others have observed this too, is when we go on vacation, everything kind of like drops down from 100 to zero and suddenly you get sick. And I was talking with my friend Owen about this and he was saying there's this theory that your immune system needs a certain level of stress in order to be activated. I'm not sure if that's the right way to think about it, but is there any truth to that? Well, certainly, yes. A sort of good way to think about it is, again, we want that kind of healthy interaction um, because especially really for young kids and when we think of, you know, neonates and children, um, it's good for them to go out and play in the dirt. Uh, you know, my mom was always like, I was like, you know, I, I'd have a bone sticking out of my leg. My mom would be like, I just rub some dirt on it. Okay. Um, you know, the, the idea, uh, though, really has some merit because it's that exposure that sparks our immune system and, and lets it develop and lets mm. it function. One of the interesting things that you talk about when you travel, because, you know, I, I have been traveling in, in the past extensively, is that even shifting time zones does puts a stress on our body. So if we're traveling very far for our vacation, we're putting a stress on our body, and then that can actually alter our gut bacteria. When I'm home and I'm, you know, cooking my food and, you know, getting my ingredients and sourcing my stuff, I don't routinely necessarily take, you know, supplements, uh, you know, probiotics or something. But when I'm on the road, I always take them with me because the stress of different time zones, et cetera, kind of just helps kind of attenuate that effect a little bit. And also when we think about it, when we go on vacation, we're often eating different foods. You can be eating out a lot, not really knowing what you're getting. So those are different stressors on the body as well. So although we may be looking positively when we go on vacation in terms of, hey, we've got a mental break. We're not you know, stressing like we stress at our office or our job. 
Um, there still are other physical stressors that are on our body and can kind of let our immune system kind of settle down a little bit. And then you can kind of become vulnerable to these colds and things. And, and obviously, too, a lot of times when we travel, we're in a different environment. So we're not in an environment where our immune system has necessarily encountered those, those things before. So, uh, again, you look at things like how smallpox traveled, you know, in, in history, people were doing fine. And then they were subject to a different environment because people came with other you know, bacteria and viruses and things that they hadn't seen before. And, and whole populations were decimated uh, through the introduction of these other diseases. So all those things kind of happen when, you know, we travel as well. So, you know, we experienced the same thing. We went to Ireland in the fall and then we walked into, you know, a hotel we're staying. And you could hear everyone coughing all around us. I was like, I hope I don't. And then oh, two days God. later, I, you know, I was laid out for about a day or two with, with that. So it's probably a variant I hadn't right. seen before. Yeah, the exposure piece sounds crucial to all of this. And I want to get back to that in a minute. But something you said around um, the time zone change, is there something specific around, you know, our circadian rhythms and that getting shifted off and that has something to do with our gut bacteria? Yeah, it's 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 sort of a form of stress, as I think, as much as we can tell. It's really sort of this fascinating subject because our lives are really, I like to say, all about rhythms, uh, getting in rhythms, being in rhythm with our food, being and our food being in rhythm with our seasons. And so when we look, for example, at people who do night shift work, for example, we find that they are at a very high risk for all sorts of different types of chronic disabilities and diseases, when we correct for everything that we know of, just working that night shift because it disrupts their natural, as you said, circadian rhythm. So uh, there's you know a lot of things that happen in our sleep cycles that we're just starting to learn about that are very important for our health. And in fact, most people don't realize that one of the most important and potent predictors of weight gain is actually inadequate sleep. Mm. So that upsets, again, our body cycle and rhythms. So, you know, it's not just about routines, but as you mentioned, it's about paying attention to those important rhythms. And, and you know, we have people who are night people and people are early morning people. Um, and, you know, what I always say is listen to your body. And that's, you know, one reason why I never tell anybody like, hey, you know, you have to have breakfast or you absolutely have to skip breakfast or, and this and that. Or even if you're not hungry, eat 10 meals a day, um, you know, sort of thing and snack. As like, listen to your body. Your body knows. And when it tells you to do something, do it. When people have to eat at a regular time, uh, like they have a lunch hour and it's say 11.30 to 12.30, you know, every day. Actually, what happens is our brains become trained like Pavlovian dogs. And we start to expect food at that time, even if we're not hungry and we don't need it. So if you eat that morning at like nine or 10, you'll be hungry at 11.30 simply because you're acting like a, you know, a, a trained Pavlovian pup there. It's, it's very important to be aware and be cognizant of all the different rhythms and, and ebbs and flows, you know, in our days and in, in our bodies and in our daily lives. I feel like my sister needs to listen to this because she needs to hear this. She works for herself as a content creator and she's in her early 20s and, and she's 
also a person of like not a ton of discipline <laughs> as a result she has a very severe lack of routine and you know we're always trying to like encourage her to sleep better and eat better and all this stuff but I think at the mm. end of the day every one of us needs to find that internal motivation <laughs> to set these routines and, and habits for ourselves or at least just be cognizant, you know, of them, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing? Why am I here? You know, sort of things. Then that also allows us to take a moment and be in that moment, uh, if you will. So often, you know, we're somewhere and we're thinking about what we got to do next or what we forgot to do behind. We're, we're not in the, in the moment. And there was a study from Harvard that uh, was really enlightening. It, it shows number one, that we derive happiness when we are in the moment. That's when we're happy, which is good for our health uh, when we're cognizant of that. But unfortunately, about 49% of the time, the average person is either stressing about something that happened in the past or they're worried about something that they're going to do in the future. And it's a very interesting story because it, it probably actually has to do as a survival mechanism from the days when they were like, you know, saber-toothed tigers, because if you didn't worry about the tiger, then you probably got eaten. Mm -hmm. And so the people that, you know, la-di-da, zippity-doo-da, and just oblivious to everything, they probably didn't survive to pass on sort of these worry genes. It, it actually is a term in culinary medicine, it's called a, a natural negativity bias, but it also kind of takes us out of that moment. So if you're at the gym, don't necessarily be stressing about what you have to do when you leave the gym, maybe just, you know, enjoy that moment at the gym and, you know, feel your body, et cetera. All, all those sorts of little things that we can do can add up to have positive impacts, you know, on our health and our lives and ultimately our happiness, which is, I think, why we're here in the first place. Yeah. The thing I love about having these conversations with you, Mike, is we always go in a different direction than I expect, but in a good way, <laughs> because I feel like you put things in a very easy to understand way where to me, when I think of immune system, like I think of very like technical ways of thinking about how the body functions, but if we just think about it as like putting your body at ease and getting into these rhythms. It's like, oh, okay. It sounds like mindfulness and just generally being happy has a lot to do with our bodies being at ease. Well, and, and health. So there was a study that came out three weeks ago, very fascinating study talking about mindfulness. Um, they looked at the gut microbiome of a, uh, a number of Tibetan monks, and they were looking to see can meditation affect our gut bacteria? And the, the short answer is yes. So they took people that lived in the same area, ate the same foods, had the, you know, they corrected for diet and all those sorts of things. Uh, but what they found is that the gut bacteria of these Tibetan monks were different. And obviously the big variable there is, is the meditative practice. I mean, and of course, Tibetan monks, like that's serious meditation. It's not sort of five minutes of, of mindfulness a day. But it does show you that those things can have, you know, powerful impacts on our physiology. Uh, there was another, another study that came out along that amount of time, which was very fascinating because it showed that the type of bacteria you have in your gut can influence your athletic endurance. What they were able to show is that the certain gut bacteria, and by that I mean uh, people who are, are most familiar like with the runner's high. So you're exercising and you kind of get that runner's high and it makes you feel really good so that, that you keep on, on going. 
Well, they found in a, in a mouse study that this was actually dependent on the type of bacteria that were in the gut of those mice. Bacteria would secrete a substance which stimulated one of the, the nerve receptors in the gut, which would go up to the brain. And then in the, our pleasure area, or one of our dopaminergic pleasure areas of our brain, that nerve would result in secreting something that delayed and prohibited the breakdown of dopamine. So that dopamine stayed around longer and would accumulate and you'd start in the middle of your exercise, you'd feel really great and therefore you could go longer. And when these bacteria were missing, people couldn't exercise. So if you think about, again, a rhythm where you don't exercise or eating really bad food and you get these bad bacteria and it's like, oh, I don't want to go to the gym. I'm just so not feeling it today. Physiologically, you've sort of created that micro environment. On the other hand, when you start doing positive things, getting into that rhythm, as you said. So you make yourself go to the gym and you start eating a little better. You know, weeks down, you're like, hey, I'm feeling pretty good. I, you know, I got some energy. I'm, I'm ready to go back to the gym. And, and you physiologically changed your body. I mean, I can tell you decades ago, we would say, oh, well, that's, you know, just all in your head. But it turns out it's in your mm. gut, too. It's all connected. The more I learn about this stuff, the more I realize it, it is. the gut is linked to every part of the body. And, and, and we're linked to our environment and this planet through our gut because we eat every day and we have to. So to me, you know, that's kind of this amazing interface. Um, I know we've got the, you know, the Super Bowl coming up, but it's like these, the gut is sort of the offensive and defensive line, right? They're doing all this, you know, blocking and tackling. We're focused on, you know, catching the football, getting the end zone, doing our dance. But, you know, there's this, you know, this whole army of teammates out in front of us that are doing the, the heavy lifting. They're doing literally the, the blocking and tackling for us. And, you know, we just have to draft and select our personnel well. Yeah. Going back to the interfacing with our environment. So this goes back to the exposure point you kind of touched on earlier, which is like, you know, over the past few years during this pandemic, obviously with so many of us cooped up more at home, we've been getting sicker. And how would you explain sort of like the science behind exposure and, and what are some practical things we can do to, to kind of rebuild that exposure piece? I recall, and I think it was some years ago, actually, but again, showing that for people who had like asthma, for example, when they would get out and work in a garden, they suffered less asthma attacks. Um, so that's what you were saying, sort of that, that our immune system needs that basal level to be active. And again, you know, we don't want to isolate. We don't want to shift off to that one side. We want to we want to try to stay in that that point of balance. So I always think of it as a teeter-totter, right? So there's that sort of fulcrum underneath. And then, you know, you don't want to tip on one side. And you don't want to tip on the other side. You just kind of want to balance in the middle. And so that does mean going you know, out and, and interacting, you know, with our environment. And there are things that we can do where it's also good for our, our, our mental health. So this goes back to like the forest bathing aspect of the Japanese healthcare system where they the government supports and encourages and and helps pay for areas where you know you can just walk or just eat your lunch in a in a park instead of stressing in a cubicle you know getting out in that in natural environment is a way to i think very positively and gently 
give our immune system that basal level of mm. exposure. Of course, like Montana, you want to be really careful um, if it's bear season. <laughs> that's a little too much stress. When, you, when you're going to do a grizzly, you know, on, on the path, that's not that's not how you want to stress the immune system. But like a gentle walk through the through the park and the pines yeah. is fine. How would you compare walk in the park, so exposure to nature, getting fresh air versus um, going into like a big group of people? Is there kind of benefit to that? Like just spending time with people who bring different sorts of germs and gut bacteria um, or even being around animals like having pets? I guess how would those three different types of exposure compare? Well, I think that they're all, you know, can be positive exposure. They can all help us mentally in different ways. So uh, I mentioned walking amongst the pines. It's been shown, for example, that people who live with wood uh, around, you know, so things that are made particularly from, from pines, those pines actually continue to secrete. Um, yeah, you can see behind me, you know, I, we live in a, in a, in a wood house and, and uh, a log home and, and actually sap still oh, wow. comes out of, you know, some of the beams out there. As human beings, we respond to some of these sort of airborne things that are still slowly released. And they actually work to as a natural antihypertensive to lower our blood pressure, as opposed to somebody that lives in, in a, you know, concrete huh. cubicle, for example. So, uh, the walk in the pines and being in nature has many positive physiologic effects, has many positive psychological effects. As we've learned from the pandemic where people were put into isolation, we are social primates. Uh, what correlates to our health, wellness, longevity, and our happiness is the quality of relationships in our lives. Um, which of course involves personal connection. So it doesn't have to necessarily be a, a large crowd of people, but it's going to be a very positive experience in terms of, of health when we are in groups and able to re, you know, communicate and um, interact with people with whom we have a positive quality relationship. Having a strong social structure, having uh, a partner, for example, being in happily married uh, has been shown to positively correlate with decreased risk of disease, decreased risk of heart attack. If you have a heart attack, it tends not to be as bad. You tend to recover better. You're at less risk for another heart attack, you know, et cetera. And then finally, when you talk about our interaction with, you know, our furry friends, that's also been shown, you know, to be positive stress reducer. There's even, you know, some talk that, that you know, kind of cats, when they sit and, and they purr, they purr at a frequency that affects us. We are, you know, affected by these groups and these rhythms and, the, and these frequencies. It's a phenomenon, a physiological phenomenon known as entrainment. So, for example, we use that in cardiology because if someone has a certain type of heart rhythm and I put a pacemaker on and I go faster than their heart rate is, I can capture it. So their heart will then wants to beat at this faster rhythm. And then I can kind of slow it back down and get it into sync. So that's something known as entrainment. Uh, other studies have shown that when women lived in all women's dorms, that they would start to have menstrual cycles altogether. They would entrain themselves and they would get into this sort of unseen group rhythm. So there's a lot about this we don't know, um, but certainly we can observe the results of that group rhythm phenomenon. And, and certainly social scientists will tell you that groups of people or, or mobs, when they're in a negative sense, 
certainly have their own behavior characteristics. So they don't act necessarily as a group of disjointed individuals. They will act more like a single organism, uh, sometimes, you know, to our detriment. Um, and people will do things that they wouldn't normally do. And that is, is, is part of a, a well-described, you know, social science phenomenon that they study. So again, we don't know exactly how or why these things occur, but we, we certainly know that they do and they're repeatable. Probably more than you ever wanted to know on rhythms and entrainment. <laughs> yeah, well, I learned a new term today, entrainment. What I'm hearing is we should all be in healthy, loving relationships. We should all have pets and live in log cabins. <laughs> and I'm looking at my floor right now, which is original hardwood. I'm not sure what kind of wood, but this house was built in 1906, I believe. And they're original hardwood floors. Wow. They don't That's have cool. any sap, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. But again, you know, they, it's, it, they just looked at people who live sort of almost like, you know, cubicle. It's, you know, bare concrete walls. It's it's metal versus people that have plants, have, you know, wooden furniture, etc. So it makes a, you know, makes a difference. It turns out it was any wood. But one of the things they were able to identify was specifically something, you know, from the pine family of trees that, you know, we respond to as human beings, which, you know, when you think about it, it, again, kind of goes back to what we're talking about and that we're connected and we are connected to our environment. And sometimes we think we're so independent, we're so individual, you know, that we're disconnected from the earth around us and everything around us. But as we're kind of talking about today, we're intimately you know, connected. We've talked about the, you know, the, the gut bacteria, right? They live inside of us. It's really come to the point where from a medical point of view, we view gut bacteria as just another organ. You know, it's about two pounds of bacteria we carry around every day. So you've got a two pound organ that has a tremendous amount of interaction with our immune system because specifically the gut microbiome, that's where they live. That's where about 70% of our immune system resides within the galt plexus, uh, gut-associated lymphoid tissue that surrounds our gut. So we have a, a large, you know, if we were to stretch it out, our gut could cover one half of a tennis court. We've got a lot of surface area, and that's where those bacteria, you know, tend mm. to be. So that, again, going back to the gut is this sort of interface. It's not just an environmental interface, but it's an interface that's intimately connected to our immune system. Wow, 70% of our immune system lives in the in our gut bacteria. It can be identified, yeah, in within uh, what's called GALT, um, gut-associated lymphoid oh, wow. tissue. So you think about it, I mean, that's really an area of our vulnerability because, again, we're taking things from outside and putting them in. So you want to have those security guards, you know, at those potential mm -hmm. gates uh, because that's really one of the areas that where things come in. Uh, you know, another gut microbiome that, that people don't talk a lot about is the lining of our lungs. So our respiratory system, right, is a lot of its own microbiome as well. And of course, our skin. Our, our skin is always covered in bacteria. And because again, that's another kind of potential mm -hmm. gateway. And, you know, people talk about flesh eating bacteria. That's when, they, you know, we get those unwanted bacteria, you know, into our skin and get an infection or cellulitis. So again, you want to have that immune system connection to the vulnerable ports of entry. That's the gut. It's a respiratory system. Mm -hmm. It's the skin.
I am so curious to hear more of these lifestyle tips. Like I would have never thought uh, like surround yourself with, with wood. What are maybe some other lifestyle tips that you would recommend that aren't so obvious, like the sleep, water, the usual suspects. And for folks that live in urban settings and, you know, maybe live in concrete buildings, what are some things that they can do? Like, you know, bring in plants into their buildings, things like that. Yeah, I was just looking right behind you. Um, I used to work, my mom owned a, pl a plant shop when I was growing up. So we had to, I had to work there, of course, for free. <laughs> uh, but you've got what looks like a, a snake plant or a mother-in-law's tongue. Yeah, behind you there. So things that, that you can bring in if you live in an urban environment. So plants are great in terms of what types of plants. I would say get, you know, a windowsill box mm -hmm. of herbs because you can use those when you're cooking. Whatever your favorite are, maybe it's, you know, thyme, parsley, you know, oregano, basil, you know, whatever it is, maybe just microgreens, you know, are, are great as well. Uh, so any of those that you can grow um, and surround yourself with, you know, are, are always good. Um, music, uh, we were talking about rhythm and vibrations, etc. So we know music, you know, sound has a huge uh, effect on us you know, playing, maybe relaxing music at times in the background. Um, we all, you know, know if we want to get up and party on, we play certain types of music that gets us revved up. But I almost always have music on, it drives my <laughs> wife crazy. Uh, but wherever I am, you know, I, I, I change, you know, depending on kind of what I'm doing and if I need to focus. For example, classical music has been shown to help people focus. And, and I think one of the most important and simplest and a powerful lifestyle tip for folks that we often ignore, and I'm guilty of this as well, is at some point during the day, you know, take five minutes for yourself, whether it's, you know, put on, you know, a, a bit of classical music, have a cup of tea and just, you know, enjoy that moment, whatever it is. We are so 24 seven, never stopping the stimulation that adds to our stress, right? That's pushing our immune system into hyperdrive. So, you know, at some point during the day, you know, turn the volume down a little bit. And we, we used to have a saying in martial arts, you know, if you don't have time for five minutes of meditation a day, you need 10. So um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Wow. Music. And is there a difference of, you know, whether you play music on a speaker versus like hearing live music? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think so. I don't know that that's ever really been looked at. Uh, certainly a lot of hospitals, uh, we used to use it for our patients in the cardiac catheterization laboratory. They would get headphones and, and we had on staff a music therapist and she would come in and be sort of like a, a personal conductor, as a little pun, and, you know, help that, that patient pick the music that they like that would relax them. So those sorts of things. Again, for people in urban settings, if you can't get out, they're free on the internet. You can get nature sounds. That's always, you know, something I, I, I get it if I just crack my window a little bit because I have uh, a bird feeder right out back. You're right. And, and you know, I'll, I'll hear all the different, you know, birds and, and kind of get uh, those nature sounds. So it, to me, just that little crack of the window, hearing those sounds in the background, sometimes I think I'm not even aware of it, but it's those connections that you and I, you know, were talking about. So it's at least part of my brain, you know, is connected to nature. And I think it's fundamental for our health and our development. And, you know, again, as a human being to reestablish and if we've already reestablished to always work on strengthening our connections, you know, to nature, that's 
that's where we come from. That's where we go. I feel like that connection to nature can be so easy to forget or lose over the winter time when we're just, you know, indoors all yeah. day and it's dark out. Um, but yeah, that reminds me, we don't use a conventional alarm clock. We have one of those light alarm clocks that just like slowly glows and turns brighter and it plays oh. bird sounds <laughs> around our alarm there time. <laughs> so yeah, I, I can't do, I can't go back to regular alarm clocks anymore. <laughs> this actually came from a Native American shaman friend of mine is that those jarring moments when you're sound asleep and the alarm clock goes up and just wakes you up, um, basically jerks you out of sleep instead of sort of gently arousing you. He would say that that every time that happened, you would lose a little piece of your soul. <laughs> um, it was a trauma. Uh, in fact, and and I can tell you from having had decades of, you know, I'd be on call days in a row and we used to have pagers or, or yeah. the, the phone will ring these days and wake you up out of dead sleep. I don't think he was that far off. You know, that is a really bad thing to shatter our rhythm, our, uh, our sleep cycle like that. And I think you bring up a good point in when you talk about how you get awakened each morning is to also be gentle with ourselves when and where we can. You know, life throws enough um, sharp edges at us that that when we can be gentle to ourselves, yeah, we that should. That puts it really into perspective to think about that jarring alarm clock as uh, like a small piece of trauma. Imagine waking up that way every morning is like with trauma. Oh, I, 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 I could tell you story. I mean, I've had, you know, weekends and nights and holidays on call where, you know, you didn't get any sleep and you just, you'd lay down and, and it would be like 30 seconds and you were jarred awake again. So uh, yeah, it can, it can definitely be stressful. Uh, so I'm glad I'm shifting out of yeah, doing that. Oh man, anyway. I have so much sympathy for my friends who are doctors or residents. It's 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 so ironic and crazy to think about that our you know our medical professionals, our doctors that are supposedly taking care of us, are the ones you know probably living some of the unhealthiest lives in the country. I, I can guarantee. I mean, the, the whole evolution uh, and pathway for myself into culinary medicine was really driven by the fact that. I was doing absolutely everything that I tell people now not to do. You know, bad food, no sleep, high stress, all those sorts of things. You know, just about everything we've been talking about, I was doing 180 degrees the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, you know, absolutely. And, you know, it came to a point where at a young age, it affected my personal health. And then I had to make some hard choices. And it was like, wow, you know, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do mm -hmm. it for me. And so hopefully now sharing things with you and, and to your audience, you know, we can help, I can help people not make the same yeah, mistakes I did. I have some good friends in the medical world who struggle with the same things. And it's so cool to see that you've carved out this whole career for yourself that leans on medicine, but also really looks at it in a more holistic way. And and a more delicious <laughs> yeah. way. So you know, I've got I've got I've, I've got a, a a very healthful sourdough Sicilian on tap. You know, Ooh, for dinner tonight. So uh, it's my seventy two hour sourdough long ferment recipe. I've had this mother for probably over wow. a decade now. So it, I make it like a really nice soury kind of sourdough base for oh, the Sicilian. It is Friday night, um, which anybody can do. Pizza Friday, love <laughs> to see it. Pizza Friday. Yep. Well, speaking of food, I know we talked about you not liking the phrase food as medicine, um, but when it comes to your immune system and especially, you know, trying to keep everything in balance over 
you know, cold flu season. Are there particular foods that you typically steer patients towards? Like, for example, I've heard great things about bone broth for immunity. Yeah, what what do you recommend in, in that area? So for bone broth, um, this always cracks me up. This is sort of one of my pet peeves because you see these celebrity chefs selling their bone broth. It's like $15 a quart. I was making that, you know, 40 years ago. It's it's just a real stock. It's it's in a kitchen. It's just we put bones in, we put leftover veggies. People can make this themselves for probably six cents a quart because it's mostly stuff you throw away. I mean, it's it's bones that you you would probably just throw away. It's the cartilage. Again, that's where the collagen, which is one of the powerful properties of bone broths. And then it's all the leftover parts of a vegetable you don't use. So when I do it at home and it's part of what we call practical culinary medicine. Okay. You know, I, I said, Jane, you know, I want you to eat organic carrots. You say, okay, chef, Dr. Mike, I'm going to listen to you, but God damn, these carrots are costing me like $12 a bunch. Well, when you peel them, you don't throw away the peelings. You, you put them in a Tupperware. Uh, when you cut off the top, you don't throw that away. What we call the trim, the top and the tails of the vegetable, you throw it in. And then, you know, on a Sunday, you take all these leftover veggie trimmings that you've saved some leftover bones, or you can even buy, you know, marrow bones in a supermarket for a couple of bucks. Uh, and you just throw all that stuff into a big pot of water, maybe, you know, four to eight quarts of water, put it on a simmer for a couple hours, strain it off. You have the most healthful, delicious stock. You want to make risotto, you'll make it, you know, like the finest Italian restaurant. It's all in the stock. Gravies, you know, all in the mm -hmm. stock. Sauces, all in the stocks, um, etc. You want to, you know, cook those beans or lentils. You put them in that stock. That's what makes the difference instead of the water. And it is incredibly helpful for you. It's incredibly cheap. When you actually go to a supermarket and you look at these boxes that say stock broth, the government doesn't regulate the differencing in the label. So when I say it's a stock, to me that means it has animal bones in it. Um, because we're then getting, as you would say, the bone broth is it would be a, what we would call a classic stock, um, which is why, in fact, you really can't have a vegetable stock mm. if you want to be technical about it, because there's no there's no bone in it. So you'd you'd have something like a fume uh, made with you know just vegetables. You really have to look at the labels. You really have to kind of get an idea what's in it. I've looked at some of them. Some of them have added sugar. It'll say like organic stock, and I looked on the side, and it, it had sugar in it. I was like, there's no a stock, which as a, as a tip to uh, your audience out there is, is the one thing I don't season as I make it. Because a lot of times when you're using a stock, like in a risotto, you're uh, concentrating it down and it's concentrating that flavor and all that goodness and stuff. Um, but if you salt it, so it's seasoned perfectly, when it reduces down, it'll over season mm. your dish. It'll be too salty. So I don't ever, I don't ever season a stock uh, while I cook it. You could also put different kinds of herbs and spices in your stock. Um, I use like a little star anise. You could put cinnamon in uh, your stock. So again, you're extracting all those very powerful uh, micronutrients and those other compounds that we get when we infuse things with spices into, into your own stock. So making your own stock is something I really, really encourage people to do because you're, you're also wasting less in your kitchen. 30 to 50% of what the average U.S. household buys winds up in a landfill. Um, that's a huge waste. 
don't know about you, but I just got back from the grocery store. Man, when you can find it on the shelf, the price is outrageous. So we want to waste as little of that as possible. And, and doing things like stocks is just a great way. And, and you don't have to be any kind of chef to do it, right? I mean, it's a Sunday afternoon, throw the, all the leftovers in, pour the water in, put it on a simmer, come back in four hours. Um, you can even turn it out and let it sit overnight. And it's, all that stuff's just going to, you know, they're just going to get to know each other at that little party, you know, in the sauna, in the jacuzzi overnight on your on your stove. They become best friends. You strain it off in the morning when it's, when it's all uh, cool. And, you know, you just got something powerful. And then for me, we could take the, the trimmings that are left over in the winter and we feed the birds and stuff. So we have, we have a couple of like ravens and magpies and jays that they love when I make stock because they know there's, there's goodies for them the next morning. That's amazing. There's enough to go around. That's a great <laughs> tip yeah, a- and, and recipe to just keep your trimmings, you know, store them in the fridge and throw them in the stock. And, and on my YouTube site, if you go under practical culinary medicine webinars, we did one at the university about a year or two ago. It's a, it's a quick video to watch. And, and I, I talk about that and, and walk people through it. So if somebody needs to watch a video on it, we've got that from the university on Amazing. YouTube. Amazing. We will link that video in the show notes. So handy. Um, okay. Awesome. So bone broth for immune system. That sounds wonderful. What are your thoughts on supplements? You know, I think it depends on the individual, the condition, why you're taking it, and then the situation. So I'll use myself as an example, because we talked about earlier, when I'm home and I'm in, I'm in complete control of my environment and uh, my ingredients, I don't really feel a need and I don't take a probiotic supplement. When I travel, because I know that, hey, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to get on the road, what kind of ingredients. I know that I'm putting my body under stress uh, that's going to affect my gut microbiome. I take a good probiotic supplement, you know, with me when I'm on the road. So uh, I think it really depends on the individual, um, what you're looking to use that supplement for, and then what is, is the situation. So we know some supplements like chondroitin sulfate, if you have joint issues, uh, they can be helpful on a regular basis in terms of delaying progression to needing joint replacements and, and those sorts of things. Other supplements on like one a day vitamins, multivitamins, haven't really ever panned out to be of any kind of benefit. Omega-3 supplementations, sort of generically uh, for all purpose things, they've not really ever panned out to be of value. Uh, conversely, having seafood in your diet, which is obviously where we get a lot of the omega-3 supplements from, has been shown uh, to be associated with the reduction in cardiovascular disease and many other uh, types of things. So I tell people, you know, try to eat a, a good, wholesome, real food diet. For people that can't eat seafood or are allergic to seafood, right, then for that individual, something like an omega-3 may make a lot of sense. Gotcha. So I was actually just talking to my friend Kara this morning, and she's a new mom, has a baby, and she was like, oh, you have to ask Chef Dr. Mike about any tips for newborns and and mothers. Um, Is there anything else in terms of food or supplements that you would recommend to those folks for immunity? Yeah, so for new moms, there was a study, just came out a couple months ago, but it's very fascinating in that moms who eat a lot of ultra-processed food, it affects their kids. So uh, particularly when if they're breastfeeding, obviously, as you can imagine, it affects them in a very negative way. So 
it seems that some of the compounds may get directly into breast milk. And also, for example, we know that Roundup, if you eat things that have a lot of Roundup, that can then be found in breast milk as, as well. And that is obviously an endocrine disruptor. It affects the mother's gut microbiome, which in turn, again, affects her immune system and again, can affect. So it, it has a lot of long-term negative impacts on that newborn infant when we're looking at them developmentally, you know, at years and decades down the line. So I would say that what the mom consumes has a tremendous, you know, impact in that. And then obviously as they start to move towards solid food, spending time with kids and having meals as a family seems to, believe it or not, impact their risk of cardiovascular disease when they're middle-aged adults. You know, moms have to take care of themselves first because we know that it's pretty stressful having a newborn talk about like irregular hours and everything. The more that mom can take care of herself, then that's going to be better for the newborn as well. Yeah. On the note of ultra processing, I've seen a lot of information lately around seed oils, i.e. vegetable oils and canola oils, and uh, them being inflammatory and markers of ultra processing and just not good in general. What's kind of your take around seed oils? I, I don't use them for a lot of reasons. So I use olive oil um, because it's monounsaturated fat. Long and short, it turns out that our ancestors who were using lard and tallow and schmaltz or chicken fat, you know, to cook in may have been doing it the right way. Olive oil is fine, particularly when we don't cook with it. Where we get into trouble is when a lot of these seed oils are taken to high temperatures. So when we fry in them, you've heard a lot about trans fats, for example, right? And we know that those are bad. Anytime you take a vegetable oil because it's polyunsaturated and you heat it to any kind of reasonable frying temperature, you're generating trans fats, okay? There's no way around it. That's how they're made. What you probably didn't know, uh, and this was news to me, I finished reading a, a whole book. I, I'm like the well, world's most boring person. I just realized as I'm saying like, this summer I read this really good book on fat. I was like, God, like get a hobby, Mike. Um, <laughs> but it was a really good book on fat. And one of the studies had shown that those seed oils actually create over 50 previously unknown types of cis vegetable fats. So you're actually eating other fats that we have no idea what they do in the human body because they don't exist unless you take these fats and heat them to high temperatures. So I, for example, I'll saute in, in olive oil. I'll use a little bit of organic avocado oil. I don't do a whole lot of deep frying. You know, once in a while as a, as a little treat, we'll do that. Other than that, I, I don't use canola oil at all because it's GMO. Um, so you're getting huge doses of Roundup in there. Same with a lot of those other vegetable oils. So I don't use them. I use uh, organic grapeseed oil uh, when I make a homemade mayonnaise, but that's not being heated to any kind of temperature. And I also use olive oil uh, if I don't mind an aioli. The, the, the only difference there is one obviously has a little bit of that olive oil because it has flavor. So if I'm looking for a particular flavor profile, I'll make an aioli out of that. Otherwise, I use a neutral oil, but it's just like a like a grapeseed oil. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't cook with a lot of polyunsaturated oils. There have been studies where they looked back and people eating the polyunsaturated oils had higher rates of cardiovascular events than people eating saturated fat. 
So when we talk about saturated, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated, what we're talking about, in fat is what's called a double bond. So basically, uh, in a saturated fat, if you can imagine a group of people, my arm and my leg are touching the person next to me, and this arm and leg are touching the person next to me. So I have no free appendages. And that's actually what a carbon molecule does. So that carbon molecule sits in a chain, and all four of its bonds are, are taken up. So we call that saturated because it's not got room to touch anybody else. A monounsaturated fat means that I'm only touching on three points. And so one of those bonds in this long chain, in this sort of twister group of people all touching, so that's a free space. And then anytime there's a opening there, things can happen because that, that molecule can then move around. So that's monounsaturated. There's just one carbon double bond. Polyunsaturated obviously means there's a whole bunch more. And so they, things can twist at all different sorts of areas. Uh, when we talk about omega-3s, we're talking about things that have three polyunsaturated double bonds in them. So omega-3 refers to the, the three sort of spots. And we know that you know, some polyunsaturated fats like that are good. When we use these vegetable oils, we also generate compounds which have been shown to be DNA disruptors. So they're genotoxic. Uh, believe it or not, we produce things that are called ages, uh, advanced glycolation end products, which seem to wreak havoc in our bodies when we ingest them. So there's there's all sorts of reasons within our world of culinary medicine that we tell people don't go down that path. You know, contrary to a lot of the push for, oh, you have to use plant-based oils. You know, the ones that if, if you do use them, like, you know, olive oil that's cold pressed, so those oils are not subject to the high heats and the other products. They're not hexane extracted. You know, hexane is not like a good food product. It's not a good seasoning to use. Um, it's a chemical solvent. These sorts of things we, we generally stay away from. And it's, it's one of sort of our controversial points in, of culinary medicine where, you know, I would say, you know, hey, I'd much rather cook with lard or chicken fat or beef tallow in certain instances, then, you know, incorporate seed oils. If you're going to use a seed oil, I, I use a ton of olive oil in my cooking. I just don't do a lot of frying and deep frying. And so that is a good reason too, for the average American, it would push our diets away from so much deep fried food. We have to, you know, remember it's not just what we eat, it's also how we prepare it. So these techniques are important. And you can take the most, you know, organic piece of chicken you want. But, you know, if you're deep frying it in canola oil, you're not getting the benefit of a piece of yeah, organic chicken. Yeah, you're stripping the benefit from it. Funny enough, exactly. the first real meal I had after my supplement poisoning was I was really craving Korean fried chicken. So <laughs> that is what I had <laughs> once in a blue moon. Tasty. And, and one other sort of tip I give folks, because, you know, I'll, I'll occasionally make some, you know, homemade truffle potato chips as a treat. We might have them maybe once a year. But if you're going to do a fried element on your plate, that's great. But only have one. Because if you look at sort of the average fast food thing, it's, you know, everything's fried. You know, my chicken sandwiches, you know, batter dipped and fried. And the French fries are fried or the onion rings are fried. And every component on the plate is a fried element. So if you're going to have a treat and you're going to have that Korean fried chicken, man, I'm having some kimchi next to it because I love it. And, you know, that the acidity is just going to cut the fat that's in that fried piece of chicken. So there are ways, again, um, if you're going to put one fried element on 
and and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Then just go ahead and balance that out with you know some other components so that you don't have more than one of those on the plate. And I think you can really attenuate some of the negativities that that might come from it. You know where we see the problem is people going through the drive through every day and five days a week. They're eating, you know, two and three meals a day that are nothing but yeah. fried food. My body feels so heavy just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 can, yeah, it can be but nasty. I like that way of thinking about foods additively. Like you can have that treat, but what can you pair it with that'll help you know, help you digest it and, and that sort of thing, rather than just saying like, let's cut this out because you don't want to be too restrictive. It, it, yeah, we, we talked about sort of mindfulness and happiness and, and how our mood affects our body physiologically. And food is, for obviously for me, such a huge part of my life. What good is it to exist and be miserable all the time? So if you want to have a treat, hey, I'm going to have a treat. You know, I don't have Korean fried chicken every day. And the way I always think about it are those things that are, are going to accentuate it. So it's going to be fried. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be delicious and crunchy. And a lot of those textural elements that are going to add to it. But that kimchi, you know, with the, the heat that it'll bring to it and and some of that acidity, you know, is going to cut. And that's really going to balance the dish. So in, in my mind, it you know, it starts to become a much more, you know, enjoyable thing to eat because it's it's interesting. And it comes back to what you and I started with. Just like ourselves, we want to balance our plates, right? So it, we want to look for those meals, you know, that are balanced. I literally just heard my stomach gurgle just now. <laughs> And I know we're coming against the hour. I love these ch chats with you, Chef Dr. Mike. They're always so delicious. And <laughs> I learn so much. Um, as we come to a close, is there anything else on your mind regarding, you know, immunity or, or, or gut that you want to leave with listeners? Yeah, you know, I think that that when in doubt, if you just stick with the foods that nature has made for us that you enjoy, those are going to be the things that will bring you happiness and health. And the one thing I would say in terms of immunity and the good bacteria is we know that one of the things our little minions like to eat are certain types of carbohydrates. So when you're having that fried chicken, but you're having that naturally fermented kitchen, that's also a natural probiotic. So any way that you can get those sorts of things uh, on the plate, particularly any kinds of naturally fermented foods that have active ongoing kind of cultures with them, those to me are natural immunity, you know, enhancers. They're a, a hell of a lot cheaper than a lot of these supplements. And, and like, they're a lot more delicious too. They're kind of really easy to make at home. I mean, people think it's this complicated process. I made some Cordido, uh, which is a Ecuadorian spicy kind of coleslaw. And, you know, it involved basically putting some stuff in, in my jar and, and letting it sit on a counter for a week. I mean, that, that, that's how hard I chopped stuff up, threw it in a jar and let it sit for a week. And that was it. So once you find out how easy it is and you can make it at home, then you never have to worry about grocery store shelves. And um, it can be economical because, like I said, I mean, it's sticker shock every time oh, I go to, yeah. to the grocery economy, store. For sure. Yeah, we did some pickling last yeah. year and it was crazy how easy yeah. it is. And the stuff lasts forever, essentially. <laughs> They do. I mean, we we can and we pickle from our garden in the summer because we have a pretty short growing season. And, you know, in the middle of, well, it's February now. And, I, you know, I've got fresh garden tomatoes that taste like garden tomatoes. You know, downstairs we have, and you can can them, you can make, you know, big batches of sauces 
when things are in. So I've got like, you know, red sauce down there uh, for Super Bowl Sunday. I'm pulling some of my salsa verde because uh, we got all those fresh ingredients to go with some chili. So yeah, absolutely. I encourage folks to get out there and, and give it a go. Well, that sounds like a delicious way to cap off. As always, thank you so much, Chef Dr. Mike. We will have you on back soon. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.